Well, so we meet at last. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You, you gotta have an eye. Third Eye Education. Third eye. Welcome to Third Eye, and our first in a two-part series with Kim Marshall. Kim Marshall, of course, known for the Marshall Memo, which he's been doing since 2002. Prior to that, Kim Marshall began teaching sixth graders in 1969 and also was the principal of the Mather Elementary School for 15 years. For two decades now, is that right, Kim? 18 years, yeah. 18 years been doing the Marshall Memo and we've loved it. We've loved it for years. Uh, what, what compelled you uh, to put it together originally and has that purpose evolved uh, over time? So what compelled me was that as a principal, I was a principal of a large elementary school in Boston for 15 years, and I struggled to keep up with my professional reading. It was hard. I had, you know, Love Kappen and Ed Leadership and Ed Week and so forth, but I just, uh, the guilt was more than I could stand, you know, as I tried to do stuff on weekends and vacations, and then I had children of my own, and it was just really tough to do that. And so when I staggered out of the principalship in 2002, I said, wow, you know, now I have time to read, to actually read. I was working with a nonprofit, tra training principals, traveling around the country, which I hadn't done as a teacher or a principal, but I still had time to read. And so I had this idea in the middle of that first year, 2003, of what about a weekly summary of the best articles from the stuff I read and got a couple of friends to stake me and got started and got into this rhythm. And the basic thing to answer your question really hasn't changed. It's I'm the designated reader. Uh, you know, I'm the guy who goes out and finds the good ideas from stacks of stuff. I mean, now I'm reading probably more than 150 articles a week and finding eight or 10 that are the best ones for a teacher, a teacher leader, instructional coach, a superintendent, uh, someone in your positions who doesn't have time to read everything and can't cast the net that widely. What has changed is the amount of publication. So I now subscribe to 60 hard copy, but then a lot of online things. So reaching the net much more broadly. And I think actually the quality of information has improved over the years, but that's that's the basic model. And, and so just in, in, in brief, what it takes me 20 hours to do each Sunday, Monday, you can read in 20 minutes. So that's the efficiency. When you say the quality has improved, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I'm, I think Kappen has always been good. Ed Leadership has been good. I mean, I think Ed Week does a terrific job. Uh, but but really, the, I, I actually have a graph. I just did two books uh, with a co-author of, of the best of the Marshall Memo from all the years. And we have a graph of which years we took it from. And it's quite striking that there's more high quality stuff in the last sort of seven or eight years. So I think the writing has improved. The editing has improved. And just the quality of thinking has improved. Like we didn't even know what a PLC was, you know, in 2002. You know, people were kind of doing it in some places, but we didn't really know the fine points of it. Teacher supervision and evaluation has undergone a huge transformation, differentiation. There's some better thinking. So I, th I really think the thinking has improved. That's fabulous. One thing, Kim, that I was thinking about when we knew we were going to reach out to you is how similar what you do for educators, instructional coaches, administrators, like you mentioned, what you do for, for those roles is very similar to what a lot of our teachers do for their students. So uh, teachers get to be kind of the curators of what they bring into their classrooms in many cases. Even with student choice, to a certain degree, they set the boundaries of what that choice might look like. So what articles the kids read, what problems they work through, the teachers bringing that to the table. How do you deal with that weight of that responsibility? How do you decide which 
ways to lean and not lean? What tips do you have for our teachers as they're making those curations? They'll just give a very knowing grin. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is assuming you don't have a scripted curriculum, right? I mean, there are curriculums in some schools where the teacher has to literally read from the playbook and does not have that kind of discretion. Uh, I was always a pretty independent-minded teacher, but that, that's an interesting analogy. So teachers know their kids and know what is going to work and what isn't going to work. Of course, it doesn't always work. I think with, in my case, uh, I'm very closely tuned to principles that I'm coaching. So the, the three halves of my life now are the Marshall Memo is sort of you know about three days a week, usually Sunday, Monday, and part of Tuesday. Then I'm on the road or in this, in this last year you know, online coaching principles. So I'm working with like 17 principles you know, this year. And then I'm, you know, in schools giving talks and, you know, doing workshops and so forth. So I'm pretty closely tuned to what is going to resonate with a principal in the same way that a teacher would be tuned to what's going to resonate for their kids. Of course, you have moments that come up like the George Floyd murder, like uh, the pandemic and other things where, you, where you're shifting from what you might have been doing otherwise, uh, or, you know, something comes up in the news that's just very helpful and interesting or in your personal life. But I, as I sit and say, I do all my reading on Sunday. So on Sunday, I sit down and I read for seven or eight hours, go through the pile that's come in during the week. And that actually is the success. By the way, the, the formula for not burning out is that I don't do anything as it comes in. Like today, I got two or three magazines. So I'm not going to look at them. They go in a pile over there. So as I'm reading through you know, 150 things, skimming, I'm thinking, so what would a principal want to know about? And so, for example, right now, as school is closing, I'm not going to be doing some very practical classroom thing. You know, that's not what people want to hear right now. They want to hear, I mean, the big question is, well, the two big questions right now are, and I'm sure this is on your minds, is what do we learn during the pandemic? It's going to be different next year, so we're better. So the new normal is better. And the second thing is, how the heck are we going to catch up these kids uh, that are so far behind, some of them that are so far behind, and some that forged ahead, especially kindergarten kids. Like I have a, a pre-kindergarten granddaughter and a, and a first grade grandson who came out of uh, you know, online instruction a couple of months ago, and, and we're way behind. I mean, even with a lot of help at home. So, so there's, there's a lot of catching up to do. So those are the kind of things I'm tuning into as I read. And I'm very opinionated. I've been at this for 52 years. And, and I really think, no, not that, not that, not that. I'm rejecting, you know, 14 out of 15 things that I'm reading. What makes you filter stuff out? What catches your eye? Things that are authentic to the needs of your audience, whether that be your students or uh, mm -hmm. your readers. Is it just the flip side of that for filtering something out? Well, there's lots of categories. For example, puff pieces. I, I, I don't like puff pieces, things that are like 100% positive because everyone knows that a new teacher coming in, a principal coming in, you know, there, there are going to be some bumps in the road. Uh, you know, you're going to have difficult conversations. Things are going to be tough at times. I was talking to a principal out in Pueblo, Colorado this morning who's wrestling with a, a very obdurate group of, of teachers who are resisting his initiatives and with, you know, with teamwork and so forth, scheduling issues. So anything that, that doesn't feel authentic, breaking news, you know, a strike, a superintendent gets fired, you know, whatever. I mean, the, the, those things are for other people to handle. And of course, the thing in the back of my mind is there's a lot of free stuff out there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, ASCD and others have free publications that are going out. Gadfly is free. And so stuff that they're covering tends to be more of the immediate kind of variety. So I'm looking for something a little bit deeper. I'm looking for good stories. So the opposite of all those things, you know, the puff pieces, the, the breaking news and stuff, that's that's the stuff that I'm quick or something I've done already. You know, for example, I just did a you know thing last week about a particular issue. I saw a new article come in. It's basically the same thing. So I'm not going to do it. I again want to point out for our, our listeners in the classroom that the process you're going through is very similar to uh, the ones I've seen for establishing 
you know, essential learning outcomes or uh, learning targets or goals. Uh, I know there were uh, five questions that we used when we went through the process, and one of them was, you know, is there staying power behind the skill that you're looking at? And it sounds like that's exactly what you're looking for. Are there, is this something that has long-term impact? Well, I have to say, though, that a lot of research is not very helpful. So I subscribe to all those sort of heavy-duty journals, and I'm reading articles that are skimming articles that are 40 pages long. And if at the end of skimming through that article, I think, yes, okay, tell me something I didn't already know, I'm not going to do that article. You know, if, if it's something that's just very obvious, if it's something that is very narrow and technical, just said an article a couple of weeks ago, actually just a quote uh, from, a, from an article which, which said basically researchers write for researchers and they tend to frame very narrow questions, whereas an educator would, would have a broad question. You know, like, is this particular thing going to work? What's the new thinking on differentiation? Like, how am I going to plan a curriculum unit? What does an essential question look like? You know, bigger questions like that, which most researchers are not very helpful for. And then the other thing is researchers are not researching some of the most important questions. For example, how long does a principal need to be in a classroom to get an intelligent impression and be able to have a conversation with a teacher? What's the best way to give feedback to a teacher? What's the way to use rubrics? These, these questions have not really been well answered in the research. And so I'm skeptical of some of the research. I'm looking for the really good stuff, but I'm also looking for really good stories. There was a thing I did a while ago about a third grade teacher in, in the Northwest of the US who went to an exhibit at a museum showing wealth distribution in the United States. And she said, okay, I'm gonna make this dramatic and make it part of a math unit for the kids. So she got the kids to bring in dried macaroni she had them pack it into baggies of 100 each, and they had 90 baggies of macaroni. I don't know if you remember this article. So then she divides her rug uh, into five equal sections, and she has the kids take a guess about which, uh, how will the wealth be distributed? Wealth being, you know, cars and toys and swimming pools and mansions and limousines and stuff like that. And so the kids took a stab at it, and then she said, okay, stand back. I'm going to show you how it really is. And, and, and she worked out quickly on her calculator because she had she'd done the math, but she didn't know there were going to be 90 baggies. And then she, she actually distributed it. And I, I don't know if you want to take a guess about how many baggies at, were in the, in the richest quintile. You want, you want to take a guess out of 90 baggies? 89. You're, you're in the ballpark. It's 79. And, and the poorest quintile was, was nine individual pieces of macaroni. Whew. Here's a, a teacher with a lot of initiative Maybe it's not the most appropriate thing for third grade, or maybe it is. But the one thing is those kids will never forget that. Now, that's not research, right? <laughs> it's just a really good story about an enterprising teacher who went out and did something very dramatic. She probably didn't check with anyone. <laughs> I don't know how you, how you as superintendent would feel about that, you know, going on in a third grade class. Uh, but but that's, that, that's the kind of thing that attracts me, along with the hardcore research. We take a moment out of our podcast to do a little bit of an advertisement for ourselves. If you would like to write for Third Eye or edit podcasts, we could really use your help. Keeping up this weekly publication and bi-weekly podcast takes a lot of extracurricular time from our team. And the more people we have, the lighter that load becomes. Consider helping out. Feel free to reach out to us on our Twitter account, which is Third Eye Ed. That's T-H-I-R-D-E-Y-E-E-D. We look forward to hearing from you. We return to our conversation. 
you remind me a little bit, Kim, of mm. Myron Dueck. And uh, Myron has this power of framing things within stories. So even though it might not be the story of how he would do an activity, it's the metaphor that he wraps it in that makes it memorable and, and kind of has it take root in the people listening or, or the reader. Um, and so when I hear your story about the, the macaroni and the bags, that's what I think about too, is how do you get not just a good idea, but how do you make sure that the idea is conveyed in a way that will stay rooted within the reader? Well, that's something that has intrigued me. And if you go into the, like the Marshall Memo Archive, where there's you know, almost 9,000 articles now, you know, the section on memory and, and what makes learning stick is a particularly important area. And I've done lots of articles on that. And here's a situation where if there's a new article that has a slightly different angle on it, and I actually did a whole book. I don't know if you've seen the book uh, Made to Stick uh, the, by the, um, the Heath Brothers. It's a phenomenal book. You know, the, and there I did a book. You know, it was a brief summary of a whole book because their insights into how you get people to really remember stuff uh, that the, all the stuff about the retrieval effect, you know, like, like, like this is where a test can actually be helpful. A test can be instructionally helpful. Like right now I'm trying, I've been working on memorizing a quote about equity work. Okay. So equity is on everyone's mind across the country. So, so I, I'm trying to memorize this and, and, you know, so I, so basically I test myself every day and then I space the testing out. So, so I did it yesterday. So I'm now going to do it tomorrow to see if I can retrieve it, you know, perfectly without, without a hesitation and so forth. So the retrieval effect is one of the most interesting outcomes of the brain research in the last few years is, is simply testing yourself is better than highlighting, rereading, reading it out loud and all those things. A while back, we interviewed Dessa. She's a a Minnesota rapper and he does some work in New York as well, but she had done this interesting study on how to fall out of love. A lot of it aligns up exactly what you were talking about with that stickiness effect and, and the way she trained her brain, but she did it while in an, an fMRI machine. And so she got together with someone who had access to an fMRI machine and they did the whole process together. So everything that you're talking about while currently having it measured by science in the moment. It was, it's the coolest thing. You would love to look into it. She has a memoir called uh, My Own Devices. So just to add to your reading, like you don't have much to do. I have a terrible memory, by the way. Uh, I started out reading your, your articles years ago as an elementary principal. It was part of my uh, membership, I think, with NASSP or something like that. Or, you know. hmm. And it was great to get for the very reason you mentioned it, distilled down articles that are important research to read and know about. So it really helped me as a principal, you know, to be uh, connected. But I, I'm kind of curious now, with all the depth of research, you said you got 9,000 articles in your, uh, you know, archive now. Has there been one particular topic or a particular topics that when you started and collected research that has really evolved into something very different than what it started out as? Well, it seems to come in waves. Uh, you know, like right now, there's a lot about equity. You know, a few years ago, there was a lot about PLCs. Before that, it was a lot about teacher evaluation, value-add analysis, that sort of thing. Memory has been, you know, so they, these things go in waves. And, and the magazines will have, you know, like Kaplan will have a, you know, a theme issue on a particular thing. 
So I think teacher evaluation is the one that's evolved the most. So, you know, I came right through the Obama years with all the thing of using test scores to evaluate teachers. And I don't know where Minnesota is right now on, yeah. on the value add business, the VAM stuff. Uh, but uh, that, was, that was a very hot trend in 42 states, you know, bought into this idea that you can put a number on a teacher's value in terms of learning, of student learning. And we now know that that's uh, you know, a completely bogus idea. Like it doesn't work. It's, it's about as accurate as a coin toss. Yeah. It's extremely unfair. And there've been like 15 court cases you know, where the teachers have won saying, this is not fair. This is not you know, an accurate way of measuring me. But then what is? You know, I, I grew up with a traditional teacher evaluation where the principal comes in you know, once a year and, and writes down everything the teacher does and then writes it up for a couple of weeks and the teacher's waiting and waiting and waiting. And then you have the conference and all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, so the, then the more numerical stuff and the rubrics, you know, Danielson's rubrics comes over, then Marzano's rubric and everything. And so part of this time I was a principal struggling with this stuff, trying to figure it out and then watching the research and, and then putting together my own. I don't know if you see my book about this, but I do a lot of work and training on this uh, and, and have a particular method, which is very different. So this is a situation where I'm not only an aggregator of research, but I'm also in the middle of the battle. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting together ideas on this and advocating for them. So that gets complicated. And I have actually summarized some of my own articles. <laughs> they, they, they made the cut. <laughs> well, I, I do think that we've gotten feedback from teachers, veteran teachers who are, they want to get feedback. You know, teachers that we know are solid instructors, still they want to, they want to know what am I doing? How am I doing? Can I, is there things I can do better? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, when we fail to observe them and spend the time to observe them, we aren't really honoring their profession. And so we really got to make sure we're doing that so that we, we, we can learn a lot from watching these really good teachers. There has to be a good system. So I uh, mentioned the 9,000 articles. So, so one of the problems with the Marshall Memo is that it's it, because I'm summarizing the best stuff that came in last week, it's kind of random. And sometimes I get lucky and like Heather sees something, well, wow, that's something I was just thinking about. And I get feedback on that sometimes. But a lot of the times it's sort of random. So Sunday is the reading day, Monday is the writing day. So I write all day, Monday, so about 11 hours of writing. And then my wife comes home from her very busy job. And um, we, we edit it together after dinner and it takes about an hour and she finds you know, lots of interesting mistakes. And more than once she has found pubic schools which is, uh, would be a very, very unfortunate uh, typo to put out there. Then I, before I start sending in 11 o'clock on Monday night, I upload everything to the archive. So you can search for memory. You can search for, you know, Mike Schmoker. You can search for, for anything. So that makes it easier to find stuff. But then as the years went on, there was too much stuff. You know, so if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, I have 235 articles about memory. So that's not helpful. So then I invented the idea of the classics. So what are the best of the best? And I wait a few days and then every week, you know, like this Friday, I'll look back at this week's memo and say, so which are, are any of these classics? And then I'll highlight those so you can, you can do a sub-search for those. But that's not enough. And so then Jen, David Lang and I put together these two books, uh, you know, the best of the Marshall Memo. So this took two years of work and those are out there. And, you know, and, and, and then, then we found that people found these a little too weighty and weren't reading them. So then we got a grant from the Gates Foundation, and we now have a website, I don't know if you've seen this, that has all 22 chapters available for free. And so now, if you're interested in memory, you can go and find that. Actually, it's called Making Learning Stick. If you're interested in teacher evaluation, you can go to, you're interested in, in differentiation. So all the very best thinking from all 18 years online. Can you tell us the name of the site? 
bestofmarshallmemo.org. Bestofmarshallmemo.org. I just stumbled upon it recently, and I I think I got lost in there for a good 90 minutes because um, it was just so full of great things. And and also, I think, really nice to see some of the the, the trends and also sometimes the, the contradiction side by side has power as well, because that's something Nick and I have been talking about lately is, is that point when you know a practice is now outdated. How do we move on? Actually inspired a little bit by the book, I think again, by Adam Grant. So um, yeah, that kind of concept of how do we unlearn so that we can move forward. And, and so it's kind of nice to see some of those pairings side by side in your best of Marshall memo component too. I mean, one idea of an idea that's that's discredited now is learning styles, is trying to, you know, fine-tune learning, you know, so so Mike is a kinesthetic learner and Nick is a, you know, a visual learner and so forth. And it turns out that Daniel Willingham has been one of the big proponents of, of debunking this. It's, it just doesn't work. And, you know, what Willingham says is what you got to do is you got to differentiate teaching to the topic. So the modality should be driven by, so if you're doing this teaching the Civil War, you're going, to, you're going to show the Gettysburg movie. <laughs> you're going to do some reenacting. Or if you're teaching atomic structure, you're, you're, you're going to use hands-on, you know, marshmallows and toothpicks. You know, you're going to, so, so choosing like, and then teaching the whole class with what is the best way to learn and understand and remember, you know, understanding the big thing. So by the way, another thing that's on the, on the Best of Memo website is uh, I've over the years been keeping my eyes out for articles that lend themselves to a whole staff silently reading them and then discussing mm. them in groups and then as a whole staff. And so at the very top, I don't know if you saw this, Heather, at the very top of the website, it's all faculty discussion. You click on that and you can get immediately find one of those 23 articles, a couple of which are, are about memory, actually. And, you know, so it's just like one and a half pages. And so I, I never did this as a principle. It never occurred to me. In fact, I felt guilty with people reading stuff silently in a meeting, but in a teacher's meeting, in a principal's meeting, in a superintendent's meeting, the idea of just silently reading for five minutes and on, you know, an underlining, then getting in a small group and doing a protocol discussion, then coming together as a whole staff to talk through whether it's an issue of grading policy, whether it's an issue of homework policy, you know, whatever it is, you know, how to get kids to remember. Uh, that's, that's, so I'm very pleased about that thing on the website. I made a note as you're talking, that I want to start doing that on a weekly basis with staff, at least to optionally leave it out there. Hey, everybody, if you're interested, come together. Let's do some silent reading together. Let's reflect on it together. I think that would be an excellent practice. Yeah, it's very much, it reminds me of like a genius hour structure. Yeah, I have to say that's an example of a very rapid, uh, uh, Kim Marshall has gathered an idea all the way to taking action on that idea. Uh, because at least in our model, we'd follow up that reading with, now let's try it in the classroom, let's get in there and support you. In all your roles, coaching people, gathering resources, uh, writing books, yeah. uh, working on a grant and getting the website up, where do you see the most action take place? What, what, what helps facilitate those changes from ideas to actions? Yeah, well, so now you're asking me whether the Marshall Memo has made any difference. <laughs> Thank you again to Kim Marshall. We look forward to speaking to him again next time in part two of our Kim Marshall podcast series. Thank you, as always, to Dober Iota, as well as to our hosts, Heather Like, Michael Carolyn, and Nick Truxell. Thank you to Michael Terrell, who writes our music. If you 
liked listening to our podcast, tell someone about it. Next time, as we mentioned, we'll be speaking to Kim Marshall. Stay tuned for future episodes with Laserbeak and Elon Blanc, Minnesota musician entrepreneurs, as well as an episode with videographer Heather Off. We look forward to having you back again on Third Eye.